wrap up Jesus' de declaration of being the bread of life, the bread from heaven. Amen? The living bread. Here, he is also revealed to us in this sermon, God's very will. Let's read verse 39 and verse 40. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up. At the last day. I want you to underline verse 39 and verse 40 in your Bible. Because these verses are the gospel. You can We don't have to go, well, I wonder what God means here. Or I wonder what God's will is. There's sometimes where we ask, well, I wonder what God's will is. Okay, He tells you, this is the will of my Father. And then he repeats himself in verse 40. This is the will of him who has sent me. Amen. That is emphatically a statement we must remember. Amen. Whoever looks to the Son and believes. Whoever. We reach this week the culmination of this revelation, the apex of this teaching, and the point of the entire sermon. And I would say truly the whole point of the whole gospel is reached in the culmination of this sermon. And it's fitting that this is the conclusion and that we reach this conclusion on this last day of Advent where we are celebrating the incarnation of God's Son upon the earth. Where God said, I have loved you so much that I will send my only begotten Son. That whoever believes in you, whoever believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, if you got phones, you might turn them down. I'm just telling you. It's fitting that we read this on the last Sunday of Advent where we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fitting that we have just lit the candle of love, understanding that this promise, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth, the sending of the bread of life from heaven. Can I give you a little hint? Can, can I give you a little nugget that you can hold on to? The name Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay? Jesus is born in Bethlehem in a manger. You know what a manger is? He was laid in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. So God sends the bread of life, the bread from heaven, and he sends it to the house.
house of bread, in the house, in the city of David, in the house of bread, and he puts the living bread in a feeding trough. And angels come, and they tell shepherds, born to you this day in Bethlehem is Christ, Savior. You see that when you understand that this bread of life, the bread that came from heaven that gives life unto the world is this same promise in John 3.16. We celebrate the incarnation of Christ. On Christmas Eve, we're going to light the Christ candle because the, the, the Emmanuel has become flesh and dwelled among us. God himself took upon human flesh. So as we read the rest of this chapter, I want you to see emphatically Jesus is tying, or John rather, because he's telling Jesus' story, but John is tying everything together from the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Jesus is God in the flesh. We're going to pick up at verse 51 in John 6. I want you to notice the wording. I am the living bread which come down which came down from heaven. If any man eat this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat my flesh, or excuse me, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye shall have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood drinketh in me, or dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to understand the great love wherewith you have loved us, to send us the light of the world, to send us this bread of life, to send us the giver of living water, who is himself God Almighty wrapped in human flesh. Lord, let us look upon this Savior that's born in a manger and see a, a soon and coming King 
strode upon a white horse with flames of fire in his eyes, coming to judge the living and the dead. Let us understand the great magnitude of the separation that was between God and us, that this great and wonderful promise, Messiah, has bridged the gulf, has closed the gap, has paid the price, has delivered the captive. Let us remember this this morning. Let us hold fast to this truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the purpose for me telling you to remember verse 39 and 40. And we're going to read it again just for clarification. Verse 39. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That all of which he has given me, I should not should lose nothing, but shall raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that has sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then we read. This portion of scripture where he says that he will raise them up. Jesus starts out by saying, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. He is the gift of God to us. He came willingly. He was sent by the Father, but he came willingly. From the Father. I am the living bread that came down. That word came down implies that it wasn't against his will to do so. It implies, yes, he was sent for the Father sent the Son, but Jesus came on his own. And surely Jesus came to, to do the Father's will. And we know that from this portion of Scripture. Because he says, I've not come to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. Amen? But we also hear these words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, I have power to lay my life down and I have power to take it up again. No man takes my life. I give it up freely. It was Christ's will to come to this earth. It was God's will that he would come. Verse 51 here, Jesus is saying that he is the living bread. He is the bread of life. And he gives this bread of life, his flesh, freely and voluntarily. In John chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 17, he gives us the water of life. The living water. Remember his words to the woman at the well. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked thee, give me a drink. You would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. And you would have never thirsted again. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 17, or chapter 21, verse 17, he says, to, to one who thirsts, let him come. To him who will, let him come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And take freely of the water of life. You see, he's not just life itself. He's not just light and life. He also gives light and life. Which is why anyone who believes in him, Jesus looked at them and said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are called to reflect the light of Christ. And we're, we're called to give out the waters of life freely. Freely you have received. Freely give to everyone that asks. In Revelation and in John, he is the living water. He gives living water. He's the water of life and gives the water of life to those who will come, to those who are thirsty, to those who will believe. You see, we talked, we talked Saturday morning, yesterday morning, we talked about this at men's Bible study. The question in John 3.16 is not, oh no, am I elect or am I not elect? Or oh no, am I saved or am I not saved? The question is simply this, do you believe? Because chapter 3, verse 18, makes it very clear. Those who believe are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they will not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 16 emphatically tells us that only those who will come will be Saved, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes. Amen. So the question is emphatically, do you believe? And it's the same question that we have to ask here. Do you believe that this Jesus is the bread that has come down from heaven? Do you believe that if you will eat his flesh or eat this bread? And this is the question, isn't it? What does he mean, eat his flesh and drink his blood? This is really gross. Both of these are metaphors for you believing. There's only one way to receive eternal life. You believe and you receive eternal life. There's not another way to get eternal life. There's only one way. Faith in Christ. We believe in the five solas, right? We believe it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, <laughs> according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? That is the truth of scripture. There's only one way to receive Christ. And that's by faith. And even that faith has to be planted by an almighty God who calls you and draws you 
Because verse 44 says, no man comes to me except the Father which has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. You notice that verse 44 is echoing verse 40 and verse 39. Verse 51, he says, except ye eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life. There is no life outside of faith in Christ. Eating in this sense here is believing in Jesus Christ. Simply, unequivocally, it's you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to this earth, that he lived a perfectly holy life and paid a substitutionary atoning death for your sins, for my sins, for all of the sins of anyone who believes. That he died and was buried three days and was rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father and will come and judge the living and the dead. That Jesus, if you believe in him, you have everlasting life. This confuses the Pharisees if you look at verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus starts off saying, If any man eats this bread, he shall live. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And then the Jews looked at him and said, How can he give us his flesh to eat? Why do you think they were so taken back by this statement? Huh? They're thinking in the natural. Yeah. They were Jews, right? It, it, made, it made sure to tell you that they were Jews, right? So let's look at this from a Jewish perspective. The law of Moses prohibits eating blood of any kind. Okay? The law of Moses prohibited the consumption of animal blood. And if it, if, if, if it prohibits the consumption of animal blood then I can assume that it means I can't eat people's blood, okay? So they were beside themselves because the law of Moses says you can't eat blood. And this started even before the law of Moses. It started in Genesis chapter 9, verse 4, when God was instituting a law with, with Noah and said, you shall not eat the blood with the life in it because the life is in the blood, Right? This same statement is echoed through Leviticus chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. It's in Leviticus 17, verse 10 through 14. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 23 and 24. These Jews were thinking, oh no, he's, he's instituting some sort of cannibalism. What is he talking about? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. You see, Jesus spoke in many metaphors that confused lots of people, right? See, he was standing at that well with that woman, and he told her, you know, if you had asked me, I'd have given you living water, and you would have never had to thirst again, and you wouldn't. And the woman goes, Lord, give me this water so I don't have to come back to this well anymore. See, Jesus was speaking of spiritual things, and she's thinking of natural things. 
The Pharisees did this. Nicodemus did this. Jesus, in the next chapter after the woman at, or the chapter before the woman at the well, chapter 3, he's talking to the Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. And what was Nicodemus' reaction? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he go in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Jesus is speaking of spiritual things. And they're thinking of natural things. And here in this instance, these Jews are only thinking in the natural. And they're missing the entire point that spiritually they are dead in their trespasses and sin. The law of Moses wasn't saving them. They, they weren't living up to the qualifications of the law of Moses. Nor could they. They didn't realize they were in bondage. They thought Rome was what was binding them up. They thought Rome was what was oppressing them. And just like today, there's many that think that uh, the, you know, the government is oppressing them, or their parents are oppressing them, or 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 that just that mean old pastor that won't stop talking about divorce or, or 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 homosexuality or these other things. That preacher, he's 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 oppressing me. But they don't they don't even realize that their enemy is sin, and it's killed them. They are walking dead people and don't know it. These Pharisees, these Jews had no idea. I want to read a note from this ginormous Bible I have right here. I want to read a note that he, they wrote for John chapter 6, verse 53. This note is very helpful. I want to read it to you. As soon as I find it, I will. It says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, cannot be intended literally. That's pretty obvious, right? Cannot be intended literally, for no one ever did that. Jesus has done frequently, as Jesus has done frequently in this gospel, he speaks in terms of physical items of this world to teach about spiritual realities. Here, to eat Jesus' flesh has the spiritual meaning of trusting or believing in him, especially in his death for the sins of mankind. See verse 35 where Jesus speaks of coming to him as it satisfies your hunger and believing in him as it satisfies a thirst. Similarly to this, to drink his blood means to trust in his atoning death, which is represented by the shedding of his blood. Now, a lot of people right here also make mention of the communion. They'll go, oh, this 
kind of represents the communion where we're, where we're remembering the Lord's body that he's broken for us and his blood that's shed for us. Now, this couldn't be the meaning that he was implying explicitly to them because he had not even administered the communion yet, okay? It hadn't been started. It wouldn't have made any sense to them at all, okay? Now, they may have had implications for Old Testament sacrifices and the shedding of blood in that sense, but it wouldn't have been implied to the Christian understanding of the new covenant yet, okay? Now, while it could be a type and a shadow, that couldn't be what he was trying to tell them because it wouldn't have made any sense. Amen? Now, we can see it looking back. But to those people at the time when Jesus had not even instituted communion, it wouldn't have made no sense to them at all. Would have made no sense for them to go, oh, this is just like communion. Well, communion, what's that? Oh, here, i got to tell you about it because I'm going to do this in about three years when I'm about to go to the cross and die. Right? God worked on a timeline, right? He worked on a timeline while Christ was on this earth. And in this timeline, the communion service has not been instituted. Amen? Nor had Jesus uh, told them that he was going to the cross yet. He's making reference to it here. Amen? So any thought towards the shedding of blood or the remission of sin, it would have been in the Jewish sense of the law and of the sacrifices of the law. Amen? Uh, now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to make an implication that it could be referring to communion to us. Okay? Just not necessarily to those people at that time. Amen? Can we agree on that? All right, good. I'm glad we got that over with. <laughs> the Holman Christian Standard, or excuse me, the Holman King James Study Bible says this about verse 53. It says the Hebrew idiom for flesh and blood refers to the total person. So Jesus is insisting on complete commitment to him. And brothers and sisters, that's the born-again experience. God does not come and regenerate a heart, draw someone to faith in Christ halfway. People are either saved or they're not saved. They're either born again or they're not born again. There's no halfway born again and halfway still not born again. That is not biblical. Any man that is in Christ is a new creation. All things have passed away, and behold, all things have become brand new. Amen? The new creature is different than the old creature. So what we understand in this is Jesus is absolutely insisting that you having faith in him, number one, is the requirement of being born again. Number two, that this is not a willy-nilly commitment to say, well, I kind of want Jesus on Monday, but the rest of the week I kind of want for myself. You don't get that kind of gospel. 
That's not the gospel of the Bible. That's the gospel of the United States of America over the last 40 years where they've turned the gospel into something that it isn't. The gospel is, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Why? Because that's the requirement of faith. Faith in Christ is the requirement of the abasing of the person, the destruction of the old man, and the born-again experience of the new creature created in Christ Jesus for good works that he had planned for you to do. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, and this is how we can get this lined up here because what we've read so far about this commitment to Christ and this, this turning over of ourselves, we still haven't got to the doctrine of the incarnation. But if you look at what it says in verse 51, you can't get past the incarnation. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. This is the promised seed that was to come and that was born in a manger that Matthew says is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the son that the angels sang about. You realize the song we sing, Hark, the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Why are they singing that? Because the night that those angels appeared under those shepherds in a field watching over their flock at night, they said, Behold, we bring you good tidings of great joy. And when they, when they got done with their announcement, it says that a great number of heavenly hosts began, uh, suddenly appeared and began to sing, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace and goodwill toward man. Do you understand that this incarnation, this Christ that was born in a manger, this bread of life that was laid into the bread basket of the city of David, it's the incarnate bread of life, Son of God, the Word of God made flesh. Spurgeon says this. He says, But the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, which is expressed by His flesh, is food to our souls. And the great truth of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, which is expressed by His blood, is the most nourishing cordial to our, to our hearts. Why? Because without Jesus coming to this earth, I would have no bread that could satisfy my soul's separation from God. Without the blood that died, the blood that was shed, without that blood, my heart would remain stone, dead, lifeless, 
But because we have this promised Messiah, Ezekiel says he will take out of us a heart of stone and put in us a heart of flesh. That this new covenant will be written on the tablet of our heart and God will cause us to walk in his ways. None of this is possible without the incarnation. None of this is possible without the atonement. Not one piece of it. The bread of life would mean nothing if the bread from heaven had not came. And that bread would nourish no one if that bread did not go to the cross and give himself for the life of the world. Spurgeon is right to see a correlation here between the flesh and the blood and the incarnation of Christ. Because this was the purpose of the incarnation to save God's people. God sent his son into the world to save his people from their sin. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. For God's love compelled, it compelled the sending of God's son according to John Chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. For God so loved the world, he gave. Not only did he give us the bread of life that came down from heaven on the day of Jesus' birth when he was born in that manger, in the trough, the feeding trough. But he gave us his son when his son went to the cross willingly, took upon himself the wrath of almighty God. To pay the price for your sin and my sin and the sin of anyone who will believe. He gave his son. That verse in John 3, 16 doesn't just mean he sent his son from heaven to earth. It means that he sent his son from earth to the cross. Because as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever looks to the Son and sees Him. Do you not see that in verse 39 and 40? And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believes upon Him will have eternal life. John 3, 16, He says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, Anyone who looked to the serpent was healed, was healed of their disease. And Jesus tells us emphatically. I'm going to go back and read it. John 3. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Jesus declares that this is the will of God, that whoever looks to the Son and sees him and believes on him will have everlasting life. And God will raise him up the last day for God's love compelled him to send his son and this sending of his son was the purpose 
that he had already spelled out for us in verse 39 and 40. His incarnation and his atonement are seen clearly here. And Jesus is declaring, if you do not believe in me, if you don't trust in me, if you don't believe in my redeeming work, there will be no life in you. And the only way to have this life is to look to the Son and to believe. I want to finish reading these verses. Verse 54, whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you see he's saying this for like the fifth time in this chapter? God's will is to redeem all those who believe. Every one of them. Not only will he save every one of them that he's believed, that believes, God already knows those who will believe, and God's already called those who will believe, and God's going to make sure of it. How do I know that? Verse 39, and this is the will of him who has sent me, that all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Do you not know that your salvation is a love gift to Christ, who is going to give his life as a ransom for many? Verse 55, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. So for all of those super hyper-Calvinists that say, oh, you can't pray and ask Jesus into your heart. Maybe we don't have a Bible verse that says, ask Jesus into your heart. But we can tell you 100% equivocally, if you believe in Christ, you're in Christ and he's in you. I can bash Calvinists since I am one. Jesus is declaring emphatically that we must believe in him. And him alone. As the living father. Has sent me. Notice how he. Jesus always says. The father's name in many different ways. He calls him in John 17. He calls him holy father. And here he calls him. The living father. Why is he the living father? Because there may be other so called gods. But we worship the only true and living God. The Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty One, the first and the last God, Yahweh, the Almighty One, the one who says, I am God and besides me there is no other. Finally, this is that bread that came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. You see, the things of this world can only satisfy for this lifetime. And many, most often, only for a short span of this lifetime. But the bread from heaven, once you taste and see that the Lord is good, once you have drawn one mouthful 
of the water of life. You'll not thirst anymore. Your soul will not hunger for any other thing because the bread that comes from heaven satisfies the soul. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. Earthly bread has the power to give you life for a day or life for a couple days. But the bread that comes from heaven is the only bread that can give you life eternal. And you get this bread simply by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we understand that God is the one who calls and God is the one who draws and no one will believe except God does a work in their heart. And this is true of anybody that has ever come to faith in Christ. The question isn't, oh, I wonder if I'm one of those people or not. The question is, do you believe? That's the question. That's the only question. I can't make you believe. Kyle can't make you believe. Your brother and sister down the road can't make you believe. It only comes from God. That's why when we pray, we say, God, save my children. Draw them to you, God. Open their eyes. Soften their heart. Quiet the voice of the enemy. Save my children, God. Nobody I've ever, I've never heard anybody pray this way, okay? I'm just going to make fun of somebody for just a moment, okay? Myself. Never heard anybody pray like this, okay? I've never heard anybody go, well, God, I pray you'd save my child if they'll listen to you. Or I, I pray you save my child if uh, so-and-so goes and talks to them. Or if you know, maybe they'll hear right. Or, you know, uh, if you can, God, can you save my children? My, I got a real problem when you say, if you can save my children. God, God can do anything. There's nothing God can't do, including save your child. And if God can come down and open the heart of some dead, lifeless 14-year-old boy in the middle of Podunk, Kansas, in a little Baptist church in 1996, he can get a hold of anybody else. Because God is the author of life, both physically and spiritually. There's not one person that ever saved their self. Every one of them needed God. No one ever got saved because they went to God. Everyone got saved because God came to them. Just like at the incarnation, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. Verse 55 through 58 reiterates the gospel truth here taught that we need to look to the Son and believe in Him. 
This is the clear teaching of this chapter. This whole message of him being the bread of life, it's all metaphors. And you can boil the metaphor down to one thing. Anyone who looks to the sun and believes will have everlasting life. We cannot ever pass up a bold, emphatic, pointed statement like in verse 39 and 40 that said, This is the will of God. That anyone who looks to the Son and believes will have everlasting life. So brothers and sisters, is election true? Yes. Does God choose? Does God draw? Does God woo people to, to be saved? Sure he does. I don't know how that works any more than you do. But I know this one thing. That everyone who believes will be saved. And everyone who comes will receive he that seeks will find. He that knocks, the door will be opened. He that asks will receive. The question is this simply. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is this bread from heaven who came to show us, demonstrate to us the love of God in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. That Christ would die for the ungodly and the sinner. And that includes us. Amen. More, more importantly, that includes anyone and everyone. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Anyone who believes will be saved. That's what we celebrate at Christmas is the coming of the Messiah who loved us and gave himself for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your we thank you for your son who you sent to this earth to be born in the flesh, to be born as a man, to live as a man under the law, to bear the weight of the law, to, to fulfill the law on our behalf. That this man who was also God would go to the cross and reconcile holy God and sinful man forever. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving yourself as a ransom for us. And that by us looking to you and placing our faith and hope and trust in you, we have eternal life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead to justify us before the Father. And you ever live to make intercession for us as our advocate, as our great high priest. Lord, we ask that you would help us this Christmas season to remember the coming of your son 2,000 years ago. 
his life, death, and resurrection, his ascension, his glorification. Most importantly, let us look with faith and hope to his second coming, that we would be found among those waiting with our lamps trimmed and our garments on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.